So as I, as I prayed, we're concluding this morning our studies in the farewell discourses of the Gospel of John. They start in John chapter 14, and they travel through John chapter 17. These are Jesus' final words of instruction and encouragement to his people prior to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And Jesus concludes his final words, the very last things that he said to his people, apart from his statements on the cross— was actually a prayer. And so the grand finale of the farewell discourses is this public prayer that Jesus lifts up to his Father. And it could be summarized in almost one singular request that he makes throughout the entirety of the prayer. Father, make us one. This is Jesus' prayer. Father, make us one. Read with me in verses 20 to 21. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That theme of union, Trinitarian union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and union between the people of God interweaves itself through the farewell discourses and has its grand finale in this final request of Jesus as he asks the Father for us, those who would come to believe through the message preached by the apostles in the first century, that we together would be one. Now, it makes sense that unity would be the focus of Jesus' final words, and this is why. After the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of God on the day of Pentecost, And in so doing, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit created a family through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that family, that's us. This intertwined community of believers and followers of Jesus, that family is literally called his body. So we are tethered together. We are the sinews and the muscles and the bones and the, and the organs and the mouthpiece and the eyes and the ears of the literal body of Jesus animated by the Spirit spread throughout the earth. So when we understand cancer, cancer is actually the malignant division of the cells of a body that eventually destroys that body. Jesus was praying in this final prayer that nothing in the coming ages would be able to divide his body, cellularly, (laughs) that no cancer would come and divide and destroy his body throughout the globe that we would be dispersed through. And so that, of course, that prayer draws attention to what I consider to be an oversized elephant in the room of the church, namely the massive division that we see in the body of Christ. Starting in the first century, some of the New Testament, pieces of the books that we have in the New Testament were actually written by the Apostle Paul to first century churches that were dividing over dumb reasons. And if you travel through the history of the church, we are pockmarked with splits and infighting debates and differences. And so it begs this question, if Christian unity, the body not being divided and destroyed, was priority number one on Jesus's final prayer list before he ascended unto the Father, did the Father say no to him? When we look at the world, when we look at the church, when we look at the history of the church, did the Father say, nope, I'm not gonna answer that one. I'm gonna allow the church to be divided. Now, 
Understand this. We have seen throughout the history of the church incredible influence and transformation of the world by the Christian body as we unify in our efforts. And yet, alongside that unity and that incredible transformation are these horrific moments of terrible division. Despite that, despite all of these differences, the infighting, the splits, despite the conferences and the confessions that make us different one from another, Christ's body, this global body of Jesus, the supernaturally indwelt, regenerated people of God, this community of humans filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to the mission, that mystical and mysterious body of people has always been one and always will be one. So we have to ask, how can that be true? Now, if you're taking notes, theologians, they discuss or they delineate between the invisible church and the visible church. We're gonna do just a little bit of theological work here. Theologians talk about the invisible church, that is that mysterious part of the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, tethered together by the supernatural mechanisms of God himself, spread throughout the world and throughout history, spanning cultures and time and space, the invisible church. It is unchanging and forever one in this mysterious way. But they also talk about the visible church, that part of the church that we can see. And so when we ask the question, did the father not answer Jesus's prayer for unity? We can say, absolutely, he's answered that prayer in the affirmative. The invisible church has been and always will be united from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost right to this present moment. And I think it bears our notice that supernaturally in this room, we are intertwined one with another. We are together supernaturally. And we are intertwined with all the regenerate people throughout the history of the world and throughout the globe. And nothing will ever change that. Now, the visible church, on the other hand, is a completely different story. And Jesus actually said that this would be the case. Jesus's kingdom parables, when we look through Matthew chapter 13 and in other areas, the parables that Jesus used to describe the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, in those parables, he used this imagery of visible communities, that is, churches like this. And those communities would be comprised of people who were committed to him, people that were pretending to be his people, and even in those communities, there would be intentional enemies of his people. And so Jesus said that the kingdom of God visible would be like a field of wheat in which an enemy had sown tares or weeds. Or he said the kingdom of God would be like a huge net that was cast out into the seas. And when the net was drawn up, with it would come fish of all kinds, all sorts of different types of fish. And Jesus would say that in this life, that visible net of fish, that field of wheat with weeds sewn into it, we actually can't and nor are we supposed to try to distinguish the wheat from the weed. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to judge who's a wheat and who's a weed. We don't get to decide that's a good fish, kingdom of God person, and that's a bad fish, kingdom of wickedness person. Jesus said, in the visible kingdom of God on earth, you actually let all of these things grow up together all the way to the end. And at the end of all times, at the end of all things, the angels will come and they will sort through the wheat from the weeds, the sheep from the goats, 
the bad fish from the good fish. And so this visible mixed bag of the true people of God right next to pretenders, this mixed bag, this visible community of committed people to Jesus sitting right next to enemies of Jesus, that reality actually helps explain, at least in part, why the visible church throughout our history has such a sordid history of division. It's because our sin and the world around us and Satan himself are all working constantly to destroy the visible union of God's people. It is one of Satan's primary missions to disrupt and destroy the union, the visible union of God's people. And so that leaves us with this question. What are we to do? Are we to just give up? Because if we look through our history, it seems like we should just tap out and say, you know what, there's never going to be true visible unity in the people of God. Look, Jesus even said there's going to be pretenders and true people of God sitting in the same room. There's no way we're ever going to get true visible unity. And I'd have to propose to us that the answer is absolutely not. And this is why. If you're taking notes, every generation of the church, every new generation of the church is called to strive to maintain the invisible unity of the Spirit and the visible unity of the Spirit. This is what Paul commanded in the book of Ephesians to that first century community. He would say, strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Despite Satan and sin and the world working overtime to divide us visibly, to highlight our differences, we are united invisibly by the Spirit. Therefore, we are to continually strive to visibly acknowledge and live into our union with the people in this room that are regenerate, not deciding who's pretenders, who's posers, and who's really Christians, but living alongside in a visible union with them and in visible union with the rest of the church and all the denominations of the church and all the tributaries of the church. We're to speak with respect and love about the church, creating that visible union for the sake of people knowing that Jesus was sent. Now, let's get into some nitty gritty here, because there are seasons where God actually begins to answer Jesus's prayer in a more manifest way. There are seasons where the church is more divided and there are seasons where the church is more united. When the church begins to truly unite, we're on the cusp of revival. This is what we've seen it through our history. When Christian leaders and Christian speakers and Christians in practice begin to say, you are my brother, you are my sister, I wanna put aside my differences racially, socially, politically, ethnically. I want to intentionally put those things aside and I want to declare my union with you. When the Spirit begins to move, Christian unity begins to increase. What happens is as the Spirit begins to answer Jesus' prayers, throughout history this happens in like waves. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. When the Spirit, through the prayers of God's people, praying for unity and committing to unity, when the Spirit begins to move, Christians will experience this renewed commitment to each other and to the community that they're being called to. So much more on this in the coming weeks. A radical commitment to the community that you are being planted in in this network of relationships. Christians will experience this desire towards self sacrificial love for each other. Christians will experience in times of revival, reconciliation, 
all of the sort of petty and not so petty wounds that we've inflicted on each other, we will go to one another saying, I do not want this between us when revival begins to happen. And what we see is when God begins to answer the prayer of his people who plead with him and cry out to him day in, day out, through the night, make us one, what we see is that God in seasons will begin to break in and strengthen the tethers of visible relational vitality for the sake of the salvation of the world. And I want to propose to you as flat as you may feel in your soul possibly this morning, that this generation, your generation, we are on the cusp of one of those moments if we will press in and pray. I want to challenge you and encourage you. I believe with all of my heart, after 20 years of praying for this, seeing it break in in the history of the church, that we are sitting in such an incredible time to be the family of Jesus and to say, I want to commit radically to be one with my family at Neighbors, one with the family of the church here in San Diego, one with the family of the church up and down the West Coast across the United States and across the globe. And this is why. The splintering of Western culture across social, political, gender, and ethnic lines. I don't know if any of you have been on Twitter lately, but it's bad. I don't know if any of you have been watching the news lately, but nobody likes anybody else. We are devolving into tribalistic warfare, and that has shaken the church. The church has been in the middle of this tsunami of division and warfare and Twitter rants just being shaken, trying to figure out which team to pick and which team to be on. This global plague and the quarantine, it has brought about what we're calling the great sifting. People have just been sifted. Souls have just been sifted. And what has happened is during the sifting, during the shaking, while some Christians have kind of dug in their heels and they've actually committed even more violently to their particular political banner being primary, other Christians have grown weary of the political debates, and they have quit flying the political flags and banners over their souls, and they have said, I submit myself to King Jesus to practice his way alone. Some have actually used, tragically, according to Barna, a third of the Christian community at this point, have used quarantine as an opportunity to slip away and cease embodied Christian community altogether. Something like a third, 33% of confessing Christians are not in a gathering like this this morning, nor in a community of tethered relationships because, nah, hmm. <laughs> and yet, there's this contingency, what the Hebrew sage is called a remnant, a small little pocket of believers who, like starving people have been handed bread, have come to realize, I need face-to-face -face embodied fellowship with my family. I need a visible expression of this union with them. And there is a desperate, starved hunger for embodied fellowship. That is a mark of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of our God answering Jesus's prayers in this world. The cultural tides have set so many Christians adrift with what I would call scriptural compromise. So many Christians are self-medicating these days with too much liberty in alcohol or prescription drugs. We've given way for so many, so many have given way to the constant gossip and slander and backbiting of our Twitter rant age against image bearers, be that political or social or ethnic. And what we are seeing is deep 
dividing lines of compromise around sexual behavior and justification for this or that by whatever means necessary. And yet there is this small contingency, this remnant of Christians in this great shaking, this great shifting of the church. There's this small resurgence of Christians, little bodies like ours across dotting the land. And in mega churches as well, there are these groups just raising up and they're saying, oh my gosh, my convictions around alcohol and drugs and sex and politics, they are becoming like concrete not a holier than thou pointing the finger at you, we've got it right way, but instead my conviction around purity and holiness and commitment to Jesus is filling me with compassion and courage and holiness. We are seeing this resurgence, this awakening by the Spirit. And so in this moment, as the Spirit, I believe in this generation, Gen Z particularly and beyond, is awakening so many are saying in these small pockets of believers, I'm done playing church. I'm done keeping Jesus on the parentheses or in my pocket. Christians are moving Jesus from the periphery and they are making his teachings the center of absolutely everything. So there's this unseen growing There's this unseen growing groundswell of radically committed practitioners of the way of Jesus. And it's us, and I pray millions of communities like ours, these pockets of reinvigorated unity that will remind the rest of the church and the world that Jesus' prayers for unity are being answered in the affirmative, not only in the invisible, but in the visible, just not according to our timelines and our blueprints. And so what we are praying for is the fulfillment of verse 23, John 17. Would you read with me again? We are praying that the church in our generation would see a new expression, an even more vibrant and fulfilled expression, an answer to this prayer, verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. Union denominationally in some measure. Union across the different factions of Christianity. Union within Christian communities where we have seen such splitting and splintering over COVID and politics and mask and race and sex. All of these things. Then the world, verse 23, will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. A precursor to a great revival is a resurgence of God's people say, my convictions, my courage, my commitment, these things are being empowered by the Spirit in greater degree to practice the way of Jesus above all else. Let's close with three emphases, three emphases from Jesus' final prayer for Christian unity. If you're taking notes, number one, we unify around and under God's word. Number two, we unify in his glory. And number three, unity is a process of maturity. I'll say that one more time more slowly. Number one, as Christians... We will unify in times of revival under his word. We come under the Bible. We unify under his word. Number two, we unify in his glory. And number three, unity is a process of maturity. Unity is a process of maturity. Let's talk about his word here for a moment. Every group that we have has at its center something that creates the solidarity something that creates the unity. So sports is a good analogy. I lived in Seattle for 11 years. I was there in 2014 when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. And I can tell you that we had, living in the city of Seattle, every political, economic, sexual, ethnic, cultural stripe living in that city. The whole spread that you can imagine. But on Sunday, despite all of our differences, the entire city was united as one. Not around the gospel, though. (laughs) 
we were united around the notion that we that Sunday would be the loudest stadium in the NFL, hence the moniker 12th man for the crowds that would pack into Quest Stadium. I've been in there. It's like sitting in a jet engine. It is literally like a jet engine goes off when kickoff goes off in that stadium. And every Sunday, the entire city, no matter what your background was, was united to, to come alongside with our cheer and our praise, Russell Wilson and Coach Pete, and, and, and watch them do what they did. There was a unified culture around the Hawks that crossed over every social barrier. And so there was something interesting. Everybody knew the language, like everybody knew the chants. Everybody knew the hawk dance. I taught my kids the hawk dance for touchdowns. Yeah, when they were little, they used to do all that. Now you guys can all look over at them and embarrass them. Everybody wore jerseys. Like everybody wore jerseys. On Sunday morning, it was anathema for the preachers to show up without their green jerseys on or their gray jerseys on. And then, of course, Monday morning after the game, everybody was going over the talking points and the coaching points of what Pete and the crew had done right or wrong. They would do this ad nauseum throughout the week, preparing for the next Sunday. There was complete unity around this football team. And so as a resurgence of Christian unity grows, one soul at a time, maybe one of you this morning saying, I'm done playing church, that unity is filled and fueled by this commitment to what we would call the talking points, the teaching points, the strategies, the practices of King Jesus. And as we commit to that, our beliefs and our behaviors, and even a language is formed around us that creates this unique culture. And this unique culture called the church has its own expectations of belief and behavior that is pressed upon the other, rightfully so. And language, and we have our own appearance. We, are, we become a counterculture within the city that spans across all these social barriers. And the primary center that unifies us is the mission of God understood through the message of God. We unify around doing the mission of God under and through and by interpreting the message of God. Read with me in verse 20. We unify under his word. Jesus prayed for those who will believe in me through their message. You and I believe this morning because the apostles and the first century church and then the generations of the church through each generation have passed on the message of Jesus to us. And it has been passed on from generation to generation, and it will be passed on to gener generation after generation long after we're gone. And this is very important. Now track with me because this is setting up the next 10 weeks for us. Every generation of Christians have to come to the Bible and every generation of Christians have to define the particular beliefs, doctrines, convictions, and creeds from God's word around which we will unify. Every generation has to do that. There's no generation that just gets a pass and everybody gets it and everybody gets along and it's just all good. Every culture, every epoch of a history has its own unique issues that challenge the authority of the Bible. Therefore, in every generation, we got to come full circle again and say, here are our convictions and creeds as we interpret them, as the body of Christ, we unite around this message to go on mission for the kingdom of God. Everybody realizes that when it comes to the Bible, it's not as black and white as many would like it to be. 
I think much of the deconstruction we see in our day is because you were taught that the Bible is like a, an answer book to life or maybe a really sophisticated self-help program, and it's not anything like that. And so you come to the Bible, it's like, this is really confusing, and it's not black and white, and it's not a bunch of like rules for better living. It's like, what is this? The Bible also is an extremely sophisticated piece of literature. The Bible requires a lifetime of study and meditation and nuance to plumb its depths. And the Bible, we also believe, is communication from a transcendent, all-knowing, perfect creator to an always-shifting culture. Hence, if the first reason we're divided is because the world and sin and Satan divides us visibly, the second reason is because it's hard for us to interpret God's word and agree on what God's word is emphasizing and saying in every single generation for everybody to get along especially in a splintered culture like ours that values hyper-autonomy and individualism. My truth is my truth, therefore I must divide from your truth. That's just nonsense in the church. That's just silliness in the church. So what are we to do? One of our spiritual overseers and a dear mentor of mine, Dr. Gary Bashirs, he has this helpful grid, and I want to introduce it to our community. We'll be talking about this in the coming years. This is a grid that we'll come back to. But when it comes to our Bibles and the unity that we want around our Bibles, there are things that we will debate for. Like, let's have intramural debates where we get after it and we talk about whatever topic it may be, but we're not going to divide from each other over that. There are issues, though, we will debate for, and there are issues we will divide for. There are points of conviction and creed and confession that every generation of Christians must say, this is Team Jesus. If you interpret the Bible this way, it's not Team Jesus anymore. As well, there are convictions that we'll die for. So there are debate for issues, there are divide for issues, and there are die for issues. In the coming weeks, in the coming weeks, I hope I've set this up for you well. We are going to take 10 weeks and we're going to deep dive a series called Future Church. These teachings, Future Church, they are coming for a perfect moment, at a perfect moment for us as a newly forming church. We want to ask the questions, what are we about? What are our talking points? What are our strategies? What are our debate for, divide for, die for issues as we come to the Bible and submit ourselves to the word of God? Future Church is going to be a 10-week series where we lay out our core convictions and how our, how our convictions are going to relate to the world around us what we consider compromise, and what we consider courageous commitment. Future Church is going to call us to a whole series of beliefs and practices under God's word. And so if every generation of Christians have to deal with this, we as a local church plant have to define that for ourselves. We want to define for neighbors in this generation of the church who we are, what we stand for, and how we in particular practice the way of Jesus for the sake of San Diego. As well, and I couldn't be more excited about this. I've never been part of something like this. It's new and exciting and fresh to me. But our sister churches, Park Hill and Light Church, Benji and the crew up in Encinitas, they're going to be doing the exact same set of teachings. Ten weeks, future church. As well, these teachings were actually researched and developed, for the most part, the lion's share of them, by a couple sister churches of ours in San Francisco and Portland. As well, there are other churches gathering around this set of teachings to form a core set of convictions, a core set of ways that we will interact with the culture around us because we want to intentionally express this visible unity as a family of churches in San Diego and beyond. As well, it's bigger 
It's not only right now in this moment. We stand on the shoulders of brothers and sisters who hammered out orthodoxy, that's right belief, and hammered out orthopraxy, that's right practice, throughout our history, going back to the first century. We stand in solidarity with an extended, detailed list of historical creeds and confessions where in that generation they had to hammer out what's the Trinity. They had to hammer out who's the Holy Spirit. They had to hammer out what is this, what is that. And many of those creeds and confessions have united the church throughout our history. We are a confessional people. We confess these creeds to be true. So for your own personal study, I realize I'm kind of punting here, but we don't have a lot of time. For your own personal study, you can literally go to sdneighbors.church. We confess the Lausanne Covenant, which is a modern covenant that captures Nicaea and the Apostolic Creed and the Chalcedonian Creeds, all these creeds that most of you guys are never going to (laughs) read. That's who we stand with, though. Those are our people. That's Team Jesus. And throughout our history... Very, very smart communities of Christians have said, that's not Team Jesus because it doesn't align with the word. You can read our declarations there on the website and begin to get a feel for, oh, wow, this is who these people are, united with the historical church. Number three, we or number two, excuse me, we're almost done. We unify in his glory. If we unify under his word, we also unify in his glory. These next two points will be very brief. Jesus says in verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that we may be that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is so wordy. He's hard to read. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. What does that mean? How do we unify in Jesus' glory? All right, track with me. Back to Seattle for me. Um, These verses lodged themselves in my soul about 10 years ago. I was in a time of great relational division in our church, And I was reflecting on why that was happening. I was really upset about all of it. Some was my own sin. Some was sin against me. Some was just full satanic attack. Suffice it to say, one day, having read through the farewell discourses multitudes of times, I was praying through them again, and John 15, 9 stuck out. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Amazing. And then this verse, verse 22, the glory that the Father bestows on Jesus has been given to me. The same glory, the same adoration, the same applause that the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus gives to me. And here's what struck me. In all of the division in our church in Seattle at that time, everyone around me, including myself, was warring for love. Everyone was fighting for their place in the community where they would be accepted and cared for in the way that they felt necessary. So they were warring to get that from the others who were also warring against them or for them to give that to them. Does that make sense? And everyone was also warring for glory. We were all starved for a sense of significance. We were all trying to keep our place of power because if we didn't have our place of power, we'd disappear. We wouldn't be seen. We wouldn't be somebody. And it was these two verses that have stuck with me for many years now that transformed me. The same love that the Father has for the Son is focused on me. Therefore, I don't need to war for your love. I don't need to view you as my only hope for a sense of acceptance and value and worth. As well, the pseudo-significance that we're pursuing, be that by likes on Instagram or however else we may try to cow-cow to our peers around us to give us a sense of applause and honor, 
if we feel in our bodies supernaturally by the gift of the Holy Spirit that the same glory, when the Father looks at the Son and says, I glorify you, I honor you, you are valuable to me, I delight in you, that same Trinitarian glory, if and when you feel that in your body by the grace of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives you that same glory, all of a sudden you don't need to fight for significance from other people. You can actually take up resonance in the body of Christ saying, you and you and you are significant and amazing and I have my place alongside you and you have your place alongside me and we together are one in the glory that has been given to us by our Father through Jesus. This means that we come together not to compete with one another but to encourage one another. And so all of Christian belief and practice is actually designed to move us from fleshy and worldly ways of building our identities This is why Jesus' teachings were so upside down. We cannot live them out until we receive and feel in our bodies and souls the glory he's given to us. The way to lead is actually to serve. The way up is down. The way of power is to let go. The, The most honored in the kingdom of God are the unseen, and the people in the center of the kingdom were actually on the margins of society in the world. So as we grow more secure in our identities, as you and I grow in our identities... We're able to access by way of the Spirit this ability to see others as higher than ourselves. Therefore, the community comes together in the glory of the Father saying, I celebrate you. I don't compete with you. I'm encouraged by you, and I love your unique gifts and callings, and I want to see how my unique gifts and callings interweave into that. You cannot do that if you're only here on Sunday mornings, by the way. Here's a big community plug. This is going to happen every week. Only in a community of other people that you're tethered to, getting to know and celebrating their gifts, can you learn to say, oh, this is how my gifts fit into this place. This is where my gift of administration or help or encouragement or service or tongues or prophecy, whatever it may be, fit into the body of Christ. Finally, finally, unity is a process of maturity, guys. Verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity, Jesus prays. The ESV translates that particular verb and that tensing of that verb as verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Becoming one is a process. It's not instantaneous. There's a process. So as a newly forming church plant, every week, every week, some of you are new here this morning, welcome. There's a process of coming into a community where you, you begin to get a feel for the culture. Like if you moved into Seattle from a different town and on Sunday morning you wore the wrong jersey, you would immediately know, whoops, I've got the wrong jersey on in Seattle right now. There's a feel, there's a tone. You begin to pick up on the language. I remember when I first came into the church, I was like, I have no idea why these people keep saying praise the Lord and hallelujah. I don't know what that means. I just knew there was a language that, that I didn't get. Prayer culture used to make me crazy. I was like, how do they know when to pray in a circle? Are they like reading each other's mind? And I've just been like left out of the circle. I was terrified, terrified to pray in public because I couldn't read everybody's mind. That's a culture thing. It takes time. It takes time to come into a community and say, whoa, this is the big things that they have beef on or with. They, they are like, they're debating these issues. I love those. And then These things are really important to them. They're dividing over these issues, and oh my gosh, this family says that they will die. They will die for these things. That takes time to learn. And some of us come, and all of us come actually, from very, very diverse backgrounds, very diverse church backgrounds, very diverse life backgrounds, very diverse cultural backgrounds. And so the process of becoming one in every generation of the church, it is messy, and it takes a long time. 
The problem is we will have times where we think it's time to just drop the hammer and it's not. And we'll also think that there are times that we should back off the gas when we shouldn't be backing off the gas around what we're unifying around as a church. This takes patience and persistence, and that's my call to us this morning. Our prayer in the coming years, and even for the generations to follow, if God in his mercy grants me personally, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I am praying for that persistence of earnest prayer of pressing into this counterculture called the church, unified under his message, unified in his glory. We believe that God came to us enfleshed or embodied to reveal the truths that unify us. And so throughout our history, we the church and in this generation want to take time to define the sets of doctrines and confessions that we adhere to based on the revelation that Jesus has given us of God in this generation. And then we want to submit to the living Jesus as an act of love for him as he has loved us as we love one another. And at the center of all of this is the cross. As we prepare to come to communion, Faith, you can come on up. Jesus left glory. He left glory. He was separated from glory, the glory that we long for, to absorb into himself the inglorious wars that we engage in to get honor from one another. And Jesus' body was literally bruised and divided. He was divided unto death to unify us. That's what it took. And so no matter how much or how little worldly glory we have, no matter where we are on the social hierarchy, no matter where we are in the spaces and places of this world, the cross is the ultimate leveler because the cross says we are all in rebellion against God and in need of salvation. We are all feeling dishonored and abandoned in an honor culture shame setting of the gospel. We are all feeling unaccepted, and so Jesus did what was necessary to bring us back into that triune union. The cross levels all of us. The cross brings us right at eye level one unto another to all look up to Jesus on the cross and say, I need mercy. I need to unify myself with these people, not based on our affinity, not based on our age, not based on our ethnicity, not based on our gender, not based on any category that the world puts forward other than I am a sinner now called a saint, filled with the Holy Spirit, unified with millions upon millions upon millions of souls, going clear back to the day of Pentecost and looking forward to the future. I wanna live that out in visible union with my friends and family in a literal community embodied in this world like Jesus embodied himself. And friends, the cross, the cross and the resurrection should give us patience and persistence. I don't know where you sit on the spectrum. This is a debatable issue of how old the earth is. Whether the earth is 6,000 years old or 14.6 billion years old, God took a really long time to get to the cross. And if he took that long to get to the cross, then we should recognize that the way he's working is like tectonic plates, very slow moving, and then they shift and it's an earthquake. We're praying for that earthquake. But until then, the cross and God's process of making us one should be a process of patience and persistence. God is not going to rush to our timelines. And so as we come to communion this morning, allow yourself to be asked by the Spirit are you submitted to the word alongside another community of people? Like, does that community unified in the spirit have access to you to tell you yes and no? That's union. 
Are we unified in the glory? Who are we competing with? Who, who are we envious of? Who are we jealous of? Who are we striving to get the attention of? Because that will divide us as well. And allow the Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit this morning in communion to say, just ask him, I want to experience what that means. That the Father, the same glory the Father has given to Jesus is given to me. I want to know what that means in my body. And finally, let's commit, let's radically commit to a lifelong generational strategy of patiently and persisting in pursuing unity. To make it our all, that though you may only be in your 20s right now, you're saying, for the rest of my life, I want to be radically committed to a community of people so that when the world comes in, they see us tethered as one. And yeah, they don't get the language, and yeah, there's a feel to our culture that they don't quite understand, but they are embraced and brought in, that they would know that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by the Father to save them. Father, as we come to sing now and to worship you,